Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. You're listening to Season 2. This is Episode 14 of the History of Religions, and of course, they're gods. And I really hope your car vibrates when I do that, because you got the bass all cranked up, right? But who am I? Man, I'm your host. I am the skeptical ghost heathen, and I am an ancient history enthusiast, as well as a hobbyist of ancient religions, and of course, their origins. So this show, let me tell you a little bit about this show that I haven't done in the past. This show is a compilation of essays and papers, research materials from leading scholars all around the world, as well as popular authors of books on the subject, such as Carrier and McDonald and Ehrman and Strobel. You name it, we're going to bring in you know, authors from both sides of the story. But the scope of this show is to analyze and to compare history through archaeology and documentation, extra-biblical literature, and compare it to biblical accounts found in the Old and the New Testament. And it's interesting to see what people hold as absolute truths from the Bible once we compare the evidence side by side. But at the end of the day, guys, that's all for you to decide. I'm just simply the attorney laying out all the evidence, and you guys get to go into the jury room and try to decide and figure it all out for yourselves, right? So today is June 1st, it's 2021, and this episode is entitled, How Matthew Changes Mark 10 Years Later. Alright, so in this episode, same as we found in Mark, I want to look to see what this author or where this author found his source material information from to create his gospel, or her gospel maybe. What influenced him or her to make all the major changes from Mark, and why did he do it? Did he simply just didn't think Mark got the story right, and, or, or left out too many important topics, or perhaps was trying to appeal to a new audience altogether several years on down the road? That's what we want to find out. However, we also want to see the type of composition that this guy used, you know? The style of writing like, like Mark did. You know, he pulled from mythical literary styles where he used fake and real people, changed their names, changed the places of the event, and even the overall outcome of the story of another similar story from um, other types of books, right? But a story that people would recognize, make a connection with, and that connection was always the plot of the gospel story. So thank you for listening, everybody, and please share with your friends you think that they would enjoy this show as well and help spread that love. But if you give me an hour, guys, I'll give you the history of the world and so much more. So if, guys, if you're ready for this excellent adventure to begin, hop in or even tune in and let's get this party started. So I admit it, that introduction music was just a little too whimsical. So now let's get this thing a little bit more ancient, a little bit more historical, and a little bit more creepy, all right? So we have the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2. Is this an apocryphal prophecy about Jesus? Among many of the sources that the Gospels used for their narratives about Jesus, one was the Wisdom of Solomon, dated around the year 50 before the Common Era. It was included in the text found in the Quamran Caves, otherwise known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Unfortunately, later powers of the church decided to remove it from the canon, probably somewhere between the 13th and the 16th century. 
The author was a Greek-speaking Jew who lived in Egypt at the time where there was a large Jewish community living there. So this book in question, this book was written in honor of King Solomon, who was famous for his great wisdom, found in literature, of course. And it draws on Greek philosophy and ideas to explain that true wisdom can only come from God. The work was also designed to appeal to wealthy politicians and the elite members of society. So it explains the benefit of wisdom for those in authority. And so from the very beginning of Christianity, the second chapter that we're going to take a look at at the Book of Wisdom was considered as a prophecy of the death of Christ. And in this passage, the writer describes how a godless group of people become the enemies of a righteous man. And obviously, when we're talking about this group of enemies, these elites, we're talking about those Jews, those elite Jews that were in charge of the temple that we talked about for how many episodes now? This is exactly the type of thing that this particular author, both Mark and Matthew, are drawing upon. But more specifically, Matthew comes across this from wisdom and finds this highly interesting to use for his gospel. Now, the righteous man in the story is described as a child of the Lord who boasts that God is his father. His preaching and blameless life make his enemies. They lie in wait for him. His opponents say, of course. So in this particular episode, I want to take a look at chapters of the Wisdom of Solomon 1 through 3. One in particular is an excerpt found here in chapters 2, verses 12 to 20. And I'm going to begin a long quote here. And I begin quote, let us lie in wait for the righteous man, because he is inconvenient to us and opposes our actions. He reproaches us for sins against the law and accuses us of sins against our training. He professes to have knowledge of God and calls himself a child of the Lord. He became to us a reproof of our thoughts. The very sight of him is a burden to us, because his manner of life is unlike that of others, and his ways are strange. We are considered by him as something base, and he avoids our ways as unclean. He calls the last end of the righteous happy, and boasts that God is his Father. Let us see if his words are true, and let us test what will happen at the end of his life. For if the righteous man is God's child, God will help him, and he will deliver him from the hands of his adversaries. So let us test him with insult and torture, so that we may find out how gentle he is, and make trial of his forbearance. Let us condemn him to a shameful death, for according to what he says, he will be protected by the Lord. Now, of course, many apologists will compare this and try to account for the similarities to Matthew 27, verses 39-43, which says the following in the context of an account of Jesus' crucifixion as told through the author from Matthew. And I begin to quote, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, go save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross now. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, 
He saved others, yet he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from that cross, and we'll believe in him after that. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him to. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him the same way. End quote. Now, Christian apologists will actually attempt to say that this passage in Wisdom of Solomon is a prophecy about Jesus. Even Protestants were inclined to view this passage in the same light. But of course, this should raise the question about the canon, its inspiration, and prophecy for them in particular. However, as we saw with Mark, there's another possibility, namely that Matthew knew the passage from the Wisdom and intentionally used it alluded to it in the way that he depicted his version of Jesus, by placing Jesus in the role of the righteous man in that particular text, and that the Jewish leaders and other opponents in the role of the wicked, or perhaps the elite Jews who were actually running and orchestrating the temple. He reinforced the one major point that he was seeking to make. This seems, in fact, to be what Matthew is doing in most, if not all, of his allusions to the Jewish scriptures, and not only the ones that are strictly prophetic in character. Matthew's use of the Jewish Bible seems to be about typology, rather than the claims that Jesus was predicted in those earlier texts. Right? They do this over and over and over again. And Christians read them as though Matthew was claiming they are predictions for the simple reason that you today know the wider context of the verses Matthew quotes. In fact, we even know for a fact that these particular scriptures that are written in the wisdom of Solomon was referring to none of the other than Os Onias III. Remember, we talked about Onias III in the 160s of before the Common Era. He was the one that was murdered and slaughtered by his peers, by the Jewish elite those high priests that were in the temple. He was the one that's trying to bring the way of God back into the temple. If you don't remember those episodes, go back. I believe it's in uh, episode 16 of season one when we were really talking about the temple. But this is clearly about Onias III. Now, Matthew actually gets pretty creative and he pulls from a lot of different sources especially from the Old Testament scriptures. For example, Matthew 2.15 actually quotes from Hosea 11, where it is clear that the son who was called out of Egypt is Israel. Likewise, the children for whom Rachel weeps in Jeremiah 31 verses 15 through 17 is also quoted in Matthew 2 verses 17 through 18. They are the exiles who have been taken away to Babylon and not children killed by King Herod. None of these passages that Matthew quotes is a Un unambiguously a messianic prediction at all, and some clearly are not, at least if one takes the original context seriously, that is. Now, some have been persuaded that Matthew was trying to pull a fast one on him, but if so, he wasn't very smart at it, and he had very little chance of getting away with it, because these passages were fairly well known, especially to Jewish readers, right? But maybe not so well to transitioning pagans. Of course they wouldn't. So what's the appeal? He knew that he wanted to transition Jews. Why not make it a little bit familiar? But it's still it's typology, it's not history. But more plausible in my opinion is that the author of this gospel knew that he was engaging in typology. And it's the modern readers today who can't pick up on the intertextual echoes 
on their own, and they never look at the footnotes who mistake his intention overall. So other than that, Matthew is essentially a redaction to Mark, which is universally agreed upon throughout scholarship and is dated somewhere around that 85 to as late as 90 of the Common Era. And we can see this expansion of time throughout the political landscape, things that are discussed and mentioned and are shown to us between the two Gospels. Now, this author for Matthew borrows extensively from Mark, nearly the whole narrative, and frequently duplicates this material even verbatim. Matthew then added a ridiculous nativity narrative, which no reasonable historian should regard as anything but fiction, and a brief but vague resurrection-slash-appearance narrative to fix what he may have regarded as an unsatisfying ending to Mark, <laughs> but which most historians also doubt as historical, and then revise the material in between, often altering or expanding on stories Mark invented, occasionally inventing new ones and adding large sections attributing to new teachings of Jesus. It is traditionally viewed that this added material that Mark used for source came from a lost gospel, a source that's commonly designated as Q, a missing gospel. Matthew simply copies Mark's gospel and tweaks it and adds to it where he desires to fulfill his narrative and tell his story his way as using his literary device with what he learned and what he's experienced during his particular time. We have no good reason to trust he has any more reliable source material than Mark ever had, not to mention it's even 10 years away from that, that Matthew clearly and routinely and even egregiously fabricates narratives such as his nativity or his absurd redaction of Mark's empty tomb narrative only further raises the prior probability that this is just what he did everywhere else in the gospel. We have no particular reason whatsoever to believe otherwise. And he does differ and change so many particular narratives found in Mark. That's just bizarre. Now, it is generally agreed upon that the author of Matthew absolutely rewrote Mark not only to fix and to improve on it, but also to reverse its too-Gentile-friendly argument, if you would. Unlike Mark, which favors a brand of Christianity developed by Paul, of course, in which Torah observance was optional. You can bring it with you, leave it behind, just go with the New Testament stuff, or bring it all. It doesn't matter. Just come. The author of Matthew actually comes from a community of Torah-observant Christians and is keen to have Jesus in his particular book insist that we continue to make all converts remain or become practicing Jews, complete with circumcision and the obedience to dietary needs, as well as all the other laws, only minus the temple cult rituals. Because, remember, it no longer exists, for one, but just like Mark, he's employing that particular narrative of pretending that it still stands, only to have Jesus condemn it and not rely on it because Jesus is replacing the temple cult ritual. He is the temple cult. Many of, Matthew, many of Matthew's rewrites reflect the specific need to rewrite Mark, but Matthew had to do this by rewriting Mark rather than simply producing his own gospel proves that Matthew had no actual independent source 
from which to argue his position from. He had to fabricate what he needed, but not by composing his own text, but instead by simply composing a better version of Mark. And Luke clearly knew and employed Matthew along with Mark as his primary source. So separating what came from Matthew and what came from Q can be an exercise in speculation as even the existence of Q. Now, Matthew often improves Mark by supposedly fixing Mark's omissions or mistakes in geography or scripture or Jewish lore and law. But sometimes Matthew's fixes even make the story more ridiculous than it was in the beginning. For example, in the story of Jesus riding triumphantly into Jerusalem, Mark has him sitting on a young donkey that he had his disciples go fetch for him. Go look it up in Mark 11, 1 through 10. Now, Matthew changes the story so that the, the disciples instead go fetch two donkeys. Not only the young donkey of Mark, but also his mother donkey. And then Jesus rides into Jerusalem on both donkeys at the same time, which is obviously a logistical improbability. But anyway, look it up in Matthew 21 verses 1 through 9. But why does he do this? Why does he make such a ridiculous change? Because Matthew wanted the story to be a better match to the literal reading of the Old Testament prophecy that had originally inspired the detail in Mark. Indeed, Matthew also improves on Mark by actually quoting the scripture that Mark clearly also used as his source material, but didn't actually mention. We see this in Zechariah 9, 9, where it actually says, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous, and he brings salvation. He is meek, and he is riding in on a donkey, and on a baby donkey. Now, this was actually a reference to Cyrus the Great, who was discussed earlier, who freed the Jews from the Babylonian captivity some 537 BCE. Marcus Borg observes, these changes indicate a human author at work who felt free as well as compelled to modify the story he received from Mark. And so we have to ask, are the two animals in Matthew's story history remembered? Obviously they are not. Clearly this second animal is inserted there, not because Matthew had better historical information on the basis of which to correct Mark, but because Matthew wanted to make the connection to Zechariah explicit and more literal. So this is an instance of prophecy historicized. That is a passage from the Hebrew Bible that's regarded as prophecy and generating details in the gospel narrative that are then reported as an event in the gospel, which not only is characteristic of Matthew, but also a factor shaping the development of the gospel and the tradition and the New Testament as a whole. But that means that the whole gospel could be prophecy historicized, not history remembered. And it's already clear that Matthew does not care or give a rat's ass about getting the historical facts right. He does not compare sources or investigate what happened at all. He just makes up what he wants or feels is needed. Matthew also completely destroys Mark's own beautiful literary structure by moving things around. For example, he takes the Sabbath controversies and he bumps them from Mark 23 through 36 into Matthew 12 and adding or subtracting details where he likes, and placing in long sections of new creative and inventing new teachings for Jesus, such as the Sermon on the Mount, as seen in Matthew 5-7, through and the Olive Mount parables, as in uh, Matthew 24-25. through 
but Matthew recycles the piece of Mark to create large-scale structure of his own and discovered and demonstrated by Dale Allison and several others. And we'll take a look at those. Now, in comparison to Mark, Matthew has also recrafted the crucifixion narrative, specifically to be more elegantly chiastic than in Mark's version. It was necessary for his Christ sacrifice that he be completely abandoned by men. Remember what he's using for source material here. He found the wisdom of Solomon, and he's applying that. He's employing it to this particular segment of his story. So his humbling would be more thorough, as he learned from Paul in Philippians 2, verses 7 through 8. And so Peter's denial is essential to his story in this narrative. Accordingly, Matthew makes it the centerpiece of his Passover chiasmus. He certainly had to invent some things to get it all to fit. And a lot of it had to, of course. A lot of it he got from Mark. And we already know how that status of those details are, you know, as facts are already in question. Since many of them, if not all of them, were invented entirely by Mark to suit his particular narrative. Now, Matthew could have invented details from Mark and added invented details of his own to produce a completely invented gospel narrative whose literary design has completely eclipsed any interest in historical truth at all. So we can see how Matthew is crafting his invention here. So for example, Matthew adds this otherwise pointless and inexplicable detail at the beginning of his gospel that says, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which literally means God is with us. And that's in Matthew 1, verse 23. Even though that never happens, Jesus is not named Emmanuel and is never called so anywhere else in the ensuing story. This weird detail only makes sense because Matthew concludes his story by having Jesus declare at the very end of his gospel, I am with you. So basically, he just <laughs> said what he said in the very beginning, if in fact he is God. And he says this in Matthew 28, verse 20. So Matthew has consciously invented material to parallel the end with the beginning and thereby communicate a fundamental concept of the Christian Bible. But as we've seen, this is just a small piece of a large and complex structure organizing Matthew's gospel. So in reality, none of this can actually have been orally transmitted. This kind of detailed, intricate structure, just like we found in Mark's, can really only be crafted preserved and understood using written text. Yet Matthew and Mark rearrange everything to create their own unique text. This means there was no transmitted structure or order to these stories. These authors are inventing it. And since they are so freely inventing details to suit their structures, why should we believe that they are not freely inventing all of it, not just some of it? Now, illustrating every point that's made so far, it is seen in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, through Matthew, is a well-crafted literary work that cannot have come from some illiterate Galilean that lives in a cave and that's a sheep herder. In fact, we know that it even originated in Greek and not Hebrew or Aramaic for that matter, because it relies solely on the Septuagint, the Septuagint text of the Bible for all of its features and all of its allusions. It relies extensively on the Greek text of Deuteronomy as well as Leviticus, especially these two. And in key places, another text, for example, on turning the other cheek and other aspects of legal pacifism. 
Matthew shows this to us in 5 verses 38 to 42 and has been redacted from the Greek text directly from the Old Testament of the Septuagint in Isaiah 50 verses 6 through 9. So in other words, these are not the words of Jesus. This is a famous sermon as a whole, and it has a complex literary structure that could only have come from a writer, not an everyday speaker. And again, it reflects needs and interests that would have arisen after the apostles began preaching the faith and organizing communities and struggling to keep them in the fold. So it's unlikely that any of this could come from a Jesus. Now, if you're actually looking at the essay, if some of you have that out there, on page 443, I actually lay out the entire Sermon on the Mount, if you would. So that way you can actually look at it and see how Matthew designed it and how it would flow. So you can actually see the literary device and the intention behind it. So I'll go ahead and read it, but it would help if you actually looked at it as well. So A, the beginning, there's an introduction where the crowd ascends, of course, on the mountain. And that's in 4, verses 23 through chapter 5, 1. And then, B, there are the nine three-by-three three blessings, which is in 5, verses 3 through 12. And then, C, there's a summary statement of salt and light of five, chapter 5, 13 through 15. And then, D, the three pillars begun. And then, so, of the three pillars, one, the first role of the golden pillars, how to obey the Torah. And then this general principles of that is A, one is murder, two is adultery, and then three is divorce. And then B of the general principles are the oaths, which is in chapter 5, 33 to 37, which is uh, one is vengeance and then loving your enemies. And then going into number two, how to play or how to pay cult to God. This is in chapter 6, 1 through 18. And then the general principles of this is almsgiving, that's one, two, prayer. Then underneath prayer, not as the hypocrites or the Gentiles, and then two, the Lord's Prayer, where everything centers on this. And then underneath that is the introduction and address, and the, uh, the thou petitions, and three, the we petitions. And that is ending through six, 11 through 13. And then number three of this is on forgiveness, and then fasting, then how to deal with society. Then the general principles of how to deal with society is I'm talking about the, the, the stored up treasure in heaven, the I parable, the value parable, God before mammon, if you would, and encouragement. Then the general principles of do not judge. Again, we get another I parable. A value parable of, of pearls before swine is seen in 7.6 and encouragement. And then the three pillars are concluded at that point. And then C, the summary statement, which is the golden rule, which is found in chapter 7, verse 12. And then B, the, the, the three warnings, as seen in chapter 7, verses 13 through 27. So, and then conclusion, the crowd then descends down the mountain, as seen in 7, 28 through chapter 8, verse 1. So as you can see, this is simply far too elegant, and it's too intricately organized, and too obviously literary to be casual speech or memorized history. 
It is from beginning to end a written product that was carefully thought out and painstakingly arranged. He sat down for probably months creating this piece. It's far more likely that Matthew wrote this himself than just extracting it from some other text that he found somewhere. A text for some reason no one bothered to ever preserve, right? To redact from. Allison also shows that the Sermon on the Mount fits neatly within rabbinical debate over how this Jesus, Matthew's Jesus, could still fulfill the Torah after the destruction of the temple cult. And the general consensus among the rabbis was that good deeds now fulfilled that particular role, especially acts of love and mercy. That is essentially what the Sermon on the Mount says. Its solution is even more complete by creating a new king of worship in simple, humble, almsgiving, prayer, forgiveness, and fasting. As Allison points out, and I'm going to begin the quote, Simeon the Just, a rabbi of the Maccabean period, is purported to have declared, Upon three things the world standeth upon, upon Torah, upon temple service, and upon Jemolet Hasadin. And then within parentheses, Mishnah. The two words that are left untranslated are usually rendered deeds of loving kindness. So Simeon declares that three things matter most. The law, the cult, and social or religious acts of benevolence. Now the parallel with the Sermon on the Mount is remarkable because Matthew verses 5-7 through seven addresses three fundamental issues, right? As we just went over the law, the cult, and the social behavior. And that's it. It addresses the three things upon which, according to Simeon the Just, the world stands. And it addresses them in precisely the same exact order. So it seems that Matthew arranged his discourse so to create a Christian version or interpretation of the three classical pillars of the Torah law. Now, notably, it does this by simply assuming that temple cult doesn't exist, because at no point does Jesus in his very long, elaborate speech ever explain what to do about the temple sacrifice code in Leviticus or Deuteronomy. For example, even to reject it or avoid it, or that it, it isn't even needed. But to the contrary, the speech simply assumes that no longer is an issue. It's no longer an issue. In other words, it assumes the temple cult has already been destroyed, but we already know this. Which means the speech was written somewhere after 79, after Mark clearly, and probably closer to 85 to 90, as it came well after Mark. It does not come from Jesus or a historical person. It comes from creative writing. And in addition to all that, this author from Matthew adds details to make his Jesus more into a new Moses, if you would, with the quotations over my head. Now, scholars have known for a long time, for example, that Matthew's nativity narrative is an absolute rewrite of the nativity scene for Moses, drawing not only on Exodus, but on its first century expansion in the anonymous book called Biblical Antiquities. And that Matthew has his Jesus deliver his new commandments on a mountain, in the Sermon on the Mount, of course, that we just talked about, which was designed to emulate Moses delivering his commandments of God from Mount Sinai. And in Matthew, Jesus' great commission from a mountain is designed to echo in several respects of Moses' great commission before he sent it up to the mountain to go die. 
in Deuteronomy 31 through 34. And the five great discourses delivered by Jesus that we just talked about are obviously meant to replace the five books of the Pentateuch, which were believed to be written by Moses, but he didn't actually exist either. There are many instances like this of Matthew's literary slash historical revisionism. For example, this author for Matthew expands on Jesus' 40-day sojourn in the wilderness and temptation by the devil, which was an event that was already used and evoked by the author for Mark, evoking the 40 years of temptation in the wilderness of Moses and the Jews, and to an elaborate parable in which Jesus undergoes the same exact temptations as the Jews did. But unlike them, Jesus conveniently passes every single test with flying colors thus reversing the bad mojo their previous failure had cursed the Jews with. And interestingly enough, the fact that both of these authors, for Matthew and for Mark, openly reversed the roles of the Jews into Satan clearly demonstrates their anti-Semitic hidden messages that we talked about in the Wars of the Jews segments. So accordingly, Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years as seen in Deuteronomy 8.2. Jesus is there for 40 days, as seen in Matthew 4.2. Israel was tempted by hunger and fed upon manna, as Exodus 16, verses 2 through 8. The hungry Jesus, Matthew 4.2, is tempted to turn stone into bread, and Matthew 4.3-4. Israel was tempted to put God to the test, Exodus 17.1-3. The same thing happens to Jesus. And Matthew 4, verses 6 to 7. And just as Israel was lured into idolatry, as in Exodus 32, so the devil confronts Jesus with the same temptation to worship something other than Israel's God, Satan himself. Matthew 48, verse 10. So Matthew has thus invented a complete and entire narrative and put words into Jesus' mouth, all to create a literary symbolic episode involving an obviously fictional event that never happened, out of what began as a brief line, also invented by Mark. Guys, this is not history. This is the art of myth-making. Then, as you would have expected, we have the book of Luke which is also a redaction of Mark as well as Matthew, but definitely postdates Matthew as he takes on so much from Josephus' Jewish antiquities, which places us closer to 95 to even 100 of the Common Era, and perhaps even later. But Luke explicitly says that he is not an eyewitness and doesn't appear to know anyone who was. Luke was also edited over time, and if you did not know this, has two versions. One was about 20% longer than the other. And it was actually the shorter version that ended up being canonized in, um, in the Christian Bible. And by the order of the church's bishops some couple hundred years later. Now, Luke is also the first gospel to come out and overtly represent himself as a historical document, right? Where Matthew comes close by suggesting that these things he says happened and fulfilled scripture. But that's still just allegorical reading. Luke, however, tries to write like a historian, adding some superficial historical details as local color and attempting to date some events and even including an, albeit, vague preface explaining what he is doing by writing. 
But Luke also creates a resurrection narrative that is engineered expressly to answer the skeptics' questions of Matthew's particular account. And we could see this. A tactic that requires the story to be true. Although on, on this particular account, we absolutely know it's a fabrication, right? We know that from Mark's account anyway, and where, you know, all the details came from. We know where all the details came from. So no prior gospel, nor Paul, ever heard of any of the peculiar and convenient details that suddenly make their way into, into Luke's narrative. Such as that Peter had to go back and double-check the women's claim that the tomb actually was empty and handled the burial shroud, right? As in Luke 24, verses 11 to 12. Or that Jesus showed the disciples his, his wounds and made sure the disciples actually touched him and, and fed him food to prove that he wasn't a ghost, right? You know, you can picture Jesus lift, 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 lifting up his robe. Hey, hey, t touch me right here. Look, look at my hands. Luke 24, 36 to 43. Or that the resurrected Jesus actually hung out and partied with dozens of his followers for over a month before actually flying up into the clouds of heaven, as you would see in Acts 1, verses 2 through 9. And also, in accord to this conclusion, despite his pretense at being a historian, preface and all, Luke's methods are demonstrably non-historical. Why? Because he's not doing any research. He's not weighing out any facts. He's not checking them against any other independent sources and, and naming them. Or he's not writing them down to what he thinks most likely happened. All he is doing is simply producing an expanded and redacted literary hybrid of a couple of other previous religious novels, that being Matthew and Mark, as well as that missing one, Q, the missing gospel probably burnt. But each itself even more obviously constructed accordingly to literary convention rather than historiographical. Now, unlike other historians of his own time, Luke never even once names any of his sources or explains why, why we should even trust him at all, or, or why he did for that matter, or how he chose what to include or to exclude. In fact, Luke does not even declare any critical method at all, but rather insists slavishly followed what was abandoned onto him, yet another claim that we know to be a lie. Since we have two of his sources, we can confirm he freely altered them to suit his own particular agenda, filling his own narrative to, to feed his own particular audience of his time. So it is no longer reasonably deniable that Luke knew and used Matthew as source material directly. And if he did that, there was no basis left for supposing there was any other source material involved. The evidence for Luke's extensive reliance on and purposeful redaction of Matthew is documented in the works of Goodacre, Golder, and MacDonald. These are authors, obviously. So it should already have been clear that Luke deliberately transformed Matthew's nativity, as well as his passion narratives, and Matthew's account of Judas's suicide, sometimes even repeating Matthew's Greek verbatim, or even borrowing heavily from it. Now I'll give you an example. In Mark 14.65 it reads, And some began to spit on him, and cover his face, and buffet him. Prophecy! which we find in Matthew 26, 67 through 68, expanded to, 
Then did they spit in his face and buffet him, and then some smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophecy unto us, Christ, who is he that struck thee? As in Luke's version of chapter 22, verses 63 through 64, which essentially combines Mark with Matthew, repeating the concluded text of Matthew verbatim. And then the men that held Jesus mocked him, and then beat him, and they blindfolded him, and asked him, saying, Prophecy! Who is he that struck thee? Except for dropping the unto us Christ to economize the passage, of course. The Greek of Luke here is identical to that of Matthew's. And then all that Luke does is then combines this with Mark's details that covered his eyes with where Matthew omitted it, or rather altered having them spit in his face rather than cover his face, right? is a little bit more symbolic. So Luke therefore combines Mark with Matthew and recasts mostly, but not entirely, in his own words to make what he deemed to be a better passage, a better message, that Luke knows the details that Matthew added and even borrows his exact words. It's sufficient proof that Luke knew and used and plagiarized the works of Matthew. I wonder if these guys even knew each other. Now, of course, likewise, there are many places where Matthew redacts a passage in Mark. We know this. We talked about this already, right? And Luke follows the Greek of Matthew rather than Mark, showing that Luke knew Matthew and occasionally preferred Matthew's versions over Mark's original. So another example is Luke absolutely redacts Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, conspicuously reversing it into a Sermon on the Plain. How do we know Luke is redacting Matthew? Because both speeches are followed by the otherwise unrelated of Jesus healing the centurion son of Capernaum. The later occurs in Matthew chapter 8 verses 5 to 13. The sermon having ended on chapter 8 verse 1. Only a brief healing of, leap of lepers lies in between. And Luke chapter 6 verses 17 to 49 redacts that sermon. Then immediately in Luke 7, 1 through 10, the centurion's servant is healed in Capernaum. <laughs> the story in many respects is identical, even down to the specific words and phrases, such as revising the centurion's son into the centurion's boy, which some translators render as servant. But in the context, this is obviously just a different way of saying son. Trying to change it up a little bit, I suppose. So likewise, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 5, 1, it precedes the sermon with a general account of Jesus healing many, as in Luke 6, 17 through 19, does the same exact thing. These parallels are very improbable unless Luke was following and redacting Matthew's narrative. Unless Q was an actual complete narrative of the gospel with the same exact sequence of events written in Greek, but highly doubtful as we have already seen, right? So the mere fact that Luke redacted Matthew does not mean that he always simply copied or paraphrased him, but he creatively redacts Matthew and then often deliberately reverses his themes, as when Luke converts the Sermon on the Mount into the Sermon on a Plain, right? But more conspicuously, when Luke rewrites Matthew's nativity narrative, and I'm sure you've all probably heard about this, this isn't new information, but he conspicuously reverses almost all of its key elements. Whereas Matthew depicts Jesus' family as essentially outlaws fleeing Bethlehem and Herod's rule and, you know, cowering abroad for over a decade, 
Luke describes Jesus' family as obeying the law and going to Bethlehem in accordance with their emperor's command. It's quite different. Luke 2, 1 through 4. And while Matthew has Herod searching to kill the sweet little baby Jesus, Luke has his baby Jesus being presented in the Jerusalem temple to repeated public pronouncements of his messianic status by the prophets Anna and Simeon, of course, and the events that would have not escaped Herod's supposedly murderous eye, nor that of his agents and informants. And then Luke has Jesus' family living in dutifully in their home in the Nazareth. The whole while this is going on, the period where Matthew has them hiding in Egypt, bringing Jesus back to Jerusalem for the Passover festival every single year without fail in full compliance with the Levitical law, right? In Luke chapter 2, verses 4-1. Now, similarly, what this guy for Luke does, the author for Luke, erase the involvement of foreigners the Persian Magi, remember, and replaced them with evidently Jewish shepherds and replaced Matthew's magical star, which informed the Magi with an angelic light coming down from the heaven, informing the shepherds, as is seen in Luke 2, 2-18. So Luke clearly did not approve of Matthew's versions of these particular events and changed them all around to fix the story to the way that he preferred them. So obviously, we're not talking about history here. We're, 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 we're creating narratives. We're, we're, we're writing a play. There are many other respects into which it is very clear that Luke is borrowing ideas and material from Matthew, but deliberately changing others in effect to correct or to fix Matthew, as many scholars have known for years. In much the same way, Luke borrowed and deliberately changed Matthew's tale of the death of Judas, inserting it into Acts 1, 16-20, and then replaced Matthew's genealogy with Luke's very own. Luke cannot have been getting these things from that missing author Q, which did not include, include any nativities, genealogies, or even Judas's suicide. So Luke must have been redacting from Matthew, even if freely, if you would, as redactions often were. So it's fallacious to assume that a redaction must be literally or verbatim or line by line. He's all over the board. So as you can see, Luke is in effect a rebuttal to Matthew, just as Matthew was an attempt to rebuttal Mark. Mark promoted a Gentile version of Christianity, same that Paul was, right? But Paul didn't, you know, he didn't cast out the Jews. You know, you could come if you want or don't. But Paul's mission was Gentile Christianity, as was Mark's. But Matthew promoted a Torah-observant version of Christianity. Luke promotes a harmonious church, one that is good and faithful, an evolution of Judaism into what is essentially, but carefully never said to be, a Gentile church. So Luke not only borrows and redacts extensively from Matthew and Mark, who we've seen are not a reliable source of history whatsoever, but he also makes changes and additions to what conveniently suit his own purpose, and that were conspicuously unknown to either Matthew or to Mark, suggesting that his aims were also more literary than historically reliable. Now, indeed, you know, Luke's additions are often not plausible and look self-evidently like embellishments of the kind that we would expect from work like this, pretending to be history, but reinforcing the author's, you know, rhetorical aims by creating better stories and 
better models or better evidence in support of them. But Luke's evident use of Josephus only reinforces this particular conclusion, right? We talked about all the borrowing of the works of Josephus. But likewise, his use of Homer as a model for some of his stories as well. But clinching it is how much of the material Luke adds to Mark and to Matthew is demonstrably fabricated by essentially rewriting the Elijah-Elisha narrative and, you know, in 1 and 2 Kings, just as we saw that Mark had done, and casting Jesus in as the central role and updating the details for the conditions of the room in Palestine. Now, the last point that I want to make, it, it's actually already been extensively demonstrated by Thomas Brody. So the parallels are sometimes direct and there's sometimes inversions where Luke takes what is in the king's narrative and then reverses it to, you know, some key elements of it, perhaps, and are too numerous and too distinct to be chance or coincidence, as most Christian apologetics, apologetics will try to fight for. So Luke, or the source for his material, if he did not invent it himself, is creating a literary myth by reworking Old Testament scripture by not recording historical facts passed down by him by witnesses. So and so here's what he does. And if you got your Bible hub, pop it open. You know, none of us have paper Bibles anymore. Maybe some of you freaks do, but take a look. Here, here's the ones that you can compare upon. And if you're on the essay, you can look on page 452. But basically take a look at Luke 1, 5 through 17, versus 1 Kings 16, 29 through 17. And then Luke in 7, 1 through 10, he actually transforms 1 Kings 17 through 1, 6. And then Luke 7, 17 through 17, 11 through 17, he transforms 1 Kings 17 through 24. Likewise, in Luke 7, 18 through 25, transforms 1 Kings 22. And then Luke 7, 36 through 50, it's a play on 2 Kings 4, 1 through 37. See, these are a lot of them, but only four more. Luke 8, 1 through 3 plays on 1 Kings 18. Then Luke 9, 51 through 56, he transforms 2 Kings 1 um, through 1, 2, and then chapter 6. And then in Luke 9, 57 through 62, he transforms 1 Kings 19. Then last but not least, Luke takes 10, 1 through 20, and adapts elements from 2 Kings 2, 7 through 15. So here's where it gets a little bit interesting. Because in Luke chapter 7, 11 through 17, we actually learn of a new story altogether, one that's not found in Matthew or in Mark. And this is the healing of the widow's son at Nain. So the story is already intrinsically dubious right from the get-go. Because the elements of drama and the miraculous in it are typical of fiction. They're not realities. And this kind of story was already a trope that was used in a lot of other pagan sagas at the time. Essentially, it's the same tale that's told of the medical doctor in Asclepiads by Apuleius a few decades later. And similar tales were referenced by Pliny the Elder before Luke even put his pen to paper. It has the air of urban legend. A standard tale that's retold a dozen times, in a dozen different ways, of a dozen different people in different places, with different narratives. But it always, coincidentally, is the same improbable story that we conveniently never hear of any eyewitness. But, but what's further, what, what further demonstrates this particular version of the tale is fiction is that it's just a rewrite of this same legend told of Elijah, in the first book of Kings. 
Here are the parallels of all which Luke literary modifies, merges, and proves in various ways. And I'll start a list. So again, if you got the paper essay out, or the digital one, of course, now we're on page 453 if you're looking at it. So now we're going to make a comparison looking at 1 Kings 17.10 and 1 Kings 17.17-24 compared to Luke 7.6 and 7.11-17. So I'm going to do a little side-by-side, -side, right? So I'm going to read the first one. It's coming from 1 Kings, and then what I say after that is coming from Luke um, 7.6. It happened after this. It happened after this. At the gate of Sarepta, Elijah meets a widow. At the gates of Nain, Jesus meets a widow. Another widow's son was dead. The widow's son was dead. That window expresses a sense of her unworthiness on account of sin. A centurion, whose boy Jesus had just saved from death, had just expressed a sense of unworthiness on account of sin. Elijah compassionately bears her son up the stairs and asks the Lord why he was allowed to die. The Lord feels compassion for her and touches her, her son's bear, and the bearers stand still. Elijah prays the Lord for the son's return to life. The Lord commands the boy to rise. The boy comes to life and cries out. And he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he gave him to his mother. And he gave him to his mother. The widow recognizes Elijah is a man of God and that the word he speaks is the truth. The people recognize Jesus as a great prophet of God and the word of his truth spreads everywhere. Now in the case of Luke, chapter 9, 51 through 56, that emulates everything from 2 Kings 1 through 1 through 2, 6, there are even more direct verbatim and even near verbatim lifts of Greek taken directly from the Septuagint, as well as numerous parallels and deliberate changes, as well as reversals. And both accounts have the same five-part structure. A plan of death and assumption into heaven, as seen in 2 Kings 1 through 1, 6, and even 1 through 15 through 17, and even 2, 1, as compared to Luke 9, 51. And then there's the sending of a messenger in 2 Kings 1, 2, as compared to Luke 9, 52. Then the messenger being turned back, as seen in 2 Kings 1, verses 3 through 6, as Luke 9, 53. Then the mention of calling down fire from heaven upon those who rejected them. 2 Kings 1 through 7 through 14. Compare that to Luke 9, 54 through 55. Then the journeying from one place to another. 2 Kings 2 through 2, 6. Luke 9, 56. So Luke is therefore expanding on Matthew and Mark by adding made-up stories that are rewritten from Old Testament scripture, but explicitly the Septuagint version. Not only did Luke lift story ideas from the king's narrative, but he also emulated several other books found in the Old Testament. Luke's nativity story for John the Baptist, for example, is in part based on the nativity of Samson that's told in a biblical antiquities, which is an anonymous first century elaboration of the Bible, if you would, but a lot of great extractions that we can get from there. And Mary's song, which is now often called the Magnificent. So in Luke chapter 1, 46-55, it's based on Hannah's song in 1 Samson 2, verses 1-10. through 10. 
Even the names he selects have rather convenient literary meanings to them. For example, let me give you a couple of these. So like Elizabeth means God's promise. And Zechariah means God has remembered. So it's easy to understand. It's rather conspicuous that Mary's song of praise reference both God's remembering and promising. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors. See this in Luke 1, 54-55. So which is the fabrication? The song or the names of John's parents? Most scholars believe both. Now, scholars have always identified that Luke's literary structure is more ad hoc than that of Matthew's or even that of Mark's. Why? Because he's attempting to interweave so many different invented components into each other. And many scholars have found evidence of literary structure in Luke that are occasionally even interrupted with additional material, suggesting what may be the haphazard expansion of sources, or perhaps an earlier version of Luke's text altogether, that were even more obviously fictional. Now, for example... Uh, Brody has identified a conspicuous structure in the material that's borrowing from the Elijah Elisha narrative that we talked about already, but making an eight-part diptych, which could be proof that Luke used the source, a previous gospel unrelated to the others that was fabricated to make Jesus into the new Elijah. Now, I'll give you another example. The first section of eight consists of Jesus's infancy narrative, which has the two-part diptych structure of annunciations, births. Yet even that structure is composed of further diptychs. John's birth is foretold, as seen in Luke 1, 5-25. Then John is born, Luke 1, 57-80. Jesus's birth is foretold, Luke 1, 26-38. Then Jesus is born, Luke 2, 1-14. Then another diptych of other visits is formed with numerous parallel elements. Mary is visited by an angel. Then the journey to Judah, meeting Elizabeth, an old woman who breaks into prophecy, all right around Luke 1, 39-56. So, and then circumcises and names her own child John on the eighth day after his birth, Luke 1, 57-59. A sequence that is repeated again when shepherds are visited by an angel and visit Mary. Then Mary journeys to Jerusalem, meeting Anna, who's basically like an old woman who breaks into prophecy. Luke 2, 15-52. And then Mary circumcises and then names her own child Jesus on the eighth day after his birth. Keeping in mind that the Jews learned of circumcision through who? The Egyptians, if you learned of that, if you listen to that podcast, right? But each of these three diptychs is increasingly more complex than the last one. But they all fit within the overarching diptych of annunciation and birth, ending with circumcision. But doubled one sequence for John, one for Jesus, with the third diptych establishing the themes of Jesus' supremacy to John. But throughout the continuous theme is obedience to the law. Similar structures track all of Luke's lifts from the king's narrative, such as if one extracted those from the rest of Luke, and perhaps even Acts. One has a very elegant and consistent repeating diptych type of structure. 
So I want to close with one more example of this. And this is going to be the Emmaus narrative, which is basically a town in Judea. And so this Emmaus narrative is only found in Luke 24. And basically it's a resurrection slash appearance tale that's only found in this particular gospel, which makes it distinctive of Luke's style of invention, right? Or perhaps maybe he borrowed it from Q, the missing gospel, right? So in this particular story, Luke tells the story of a man named Cleopas, along with his unnamed friend, who basically they journey by road from Jerusalem to the nearby town of Emmaus. And after they learned that the corpse of Jesus has vanished. But on their way, the resurrected Jesus appears to them. Of course, in disguise though, okay? So, and basically explains to them the secret of the kingdom, which happens to be the spiritual kingdom, mind you, not a physical one. And then poof, Jesus vanishes and Cleopas recognizes who he was and goes on to proclaim what he was told. So conveniently, however, the name Cleopas means, none than the other, tell all. In other words, to proclaim. So the story has now several telltale markers of mythology, a name invented or selected for its meaning to the tale rather than any historical truth. And it's certainly, you know, a historical narrative, if you would. Never heard of from any other source ever, of a disguised divine visitor and an unrealistic conversation with a complete stranger a miraculous vanishing, and an all-too-convenient rhetorical purpose for it all. This is the vanishing hitchhiker legend, as told in a very ancient Roman style. And as it just so happens, there's a founding myth of Rome, then famously known everywhere and celebrated actually in annual passion plays. And it is almost the same exact story. A man named Proculus, which is archaic Latin for proclaimer or he who proclaims, not only again is a fictional name designed for the story, but essentially the same as Cleopas, right? Who journeys by road from a nearby Alba Longa to Rome. After a Roman people learned that the corpse of Romulus has vanished, and on the way, the resurrected Romulus appears to him, not in disguise, but this time in glowing glorious form, if you would, and explains the secret of the kingdom, literally how to conquer and to rule the world. And then what does he do? He ascends to heaven, as Luke has his Jesus do. And Proculus, he recognizes who he was and goes on to proclaim what was told. And throughout this podcast, from the very beginning, I think that I have demonstrated over and over and over again to the extent to which the gospel writers borrowed this Romulan resurrection tale for Jesus, right? Taken from Romulus. So Mark has already fashioned his passion account in light of it, and Matthew embellished on it even more. So it's not unexpected that Luke would take the same model even further. And he did. Now, not only in the ways that we already pointed out, but also here in the tale of Cleopas on the road to Emmaus. So if we accept the identification of Luke's intended Emmaus as Emmaus, spelled A-M-M-A-U-S, that's mentioned by Josephus as a town that's nearby Jerusalem, then in both of Luke's narratives and the Romulan tale, the proclaimers are journeying from a city on a mountain to a city in a valley, Roughly the same direction that flows east to west, just like the sun, and roughly the same distance, 7 to 12 miles, 
but changes the point. It changes the point, which is how you do mythology. It's how you write mythology, right? While Proclus receives his gospel on the road to Rome, Cleopas receives his gospel on the road from Jerusalem. So while the old story suggests that all roads lead to Rome, the new story suggests that all roads now lead from Jerusalem, right? So we see what he's done here. That's not history, right? That's myth-making. While Romulus appears in an awesome glory, befitting the awesome glory of Rome's dominion and the very visible empire that he promises, Jesus appears in disguise, hidden, just as the kingdom he promises is hidden, and which, like Jesus, becomes visible and thus knowable, only in the communion of the believers. So what has Luke done here? He's transvalued the Romans' founding myth. Unlike the Romans, their resurrected hero promises a hidden spiritual kingdom that's originating from Jerusalem on high. And just as the glorious visage of Romulus is what confirmed to Proculus that what he said was true, so it is the powerful word of the gospel that confirms to Cleopas that what Jesus said was also true. Luke thus rewrites the story to communicate how Christian values differ from mainstream Roman values. This is a classic hallmark of myth-making, as we saw in the example with the Homer and Virgil story about the boxer. Now, there is evidence that Luke fabricated the Emmaus narrative. It also lies not only how thoroughly it is written in Lucan style, its vocabulary and its syntax is entirely his, but also in well, how well it is crafted to echo Luke's opening chapters, Luke 1 through 2, which means Luke must have created it for that specific purpose. Now, the author N.T. Wright, he identifies parallels throughout, but most strongly in the concluding tale of Luke 2, verses 40 through 50, which is echoed throughout Luke 24, 13 to 33. So, for example, this is where we have another Passover, another Jerusalem visit, and another couple beginning their journey away from Jerusalem either discovering or mistakenly believing that Jesus was not with them. Both couples are distraught at having lost Jesus, and both quickly return to Jerusalem, where the pivotal plot is discovered. When Cleopas and his companion discover Jesus is present, or when Mary and Joseph discover Jesus is absent. Mary and Joseph find Jesus after, what, after three days. Luke 2, verses three, uh, 4 through 6. Also Cleopas and his companion, Luke twenty four twenty one. But in both accounts, Jesus asks, What are you doing? Why are you looking for me? What, what, what are you talking about? And explains scripture to those present and says, It is necessary for him to have done what he did. It is necessary for me to be among the things of my father. It's necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things. <laughs> so both stories also feature the same theme of people not understanding what was happening. And both features the, the both feature a disappearance of Jesus, right? And both despite being far too remarkable for any previous gospel to omit, suddenly appear for the first time in Luke. It's obviously it's obvious that he intended them both deliberately in imitation of each other. Now, notably in accord with all of this, 
If you look in Luke 2413, the often intriguing Codex Beze has his whole event occur not in Emmaus, spelled A-M-M-A-O-U-S and other treaties of the period, but Alomaeus, O-U-L-A-M-M-A-O-U-S. This is the name that appears uniquely in the Septuagint narrative of Jacob, which Jacob remembers is actually a name assigned to Israel who is searching for a wife, as told in the Genesis tale of 28.18, immediately after which he meets and marries Rachel in Genesis 29. Now, you remember we talked about Jacob and Sarah and, Sarah and Rachel previously. They're all allegorical names, not real people, right? Who would give birth to the last two tribes of Israel? That would be Joseph and Benjamin. Alameas is therefore identified as the original name of the village of Luz. L-U-Z, which Jacob here renames Bethel, which is God's house, even translated as such in the Septuagint, which is metaphorically also where Jesus is found after three days in the matching couple on the road from Jerusalem story in Luke. That being the most obvious meaning of this cryptic remark at Luke 2 verse 49. And considering where he was in 246, and so most Bibles today indeed translate him as saying he had to be in his father's house. So Alameas is the more difficult reading here, being otherwise so strange and cannot have been so accidental, right? Since the name is so uniquely found in the Septuagint, which he drew from, in, you know, a lot, and in the story with meaningful parallels, and therefore can only have arrived in this Lucan verse deliberately. It is therefore more than likely the original. So let's talk a little bit about Luke's allusions here, because the significance of this allusion to Genesis 28:19 is that it is the account of Jacob's ladder, by the way, which is a kick-ass movie from the, I think, the late 80s. But anyway, this is in Genesis 28, verses 10 to 22, which links all this to the epiphany of the shepherds in Luke, right? Where also a horde of angels descend and then ascend. Luke 2, verses 8 through 15. It is also where Jacob in the Old Testament blesses the stone he slept on, declaring the stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. Genesis 28:22, hence the name Bethel. And so Bethel is also where Jacob is, once again, renames Israel and promised he'd father an eternal kingdom, therefore beginning the first vision of Israel as a nation. It is also where Israel was traveling from when Rachel died and laborer bearing Benjamin right? Completing the last of the 12 tribes of Israel, just outside of Benjamin, exactly where Jesus would be born. In Genesis 35, Jacob had the, had, had the first meet Rachel on his way from Bethel, and she later dies on her way from Bethel and from Jerusalem. Bethel happens to be on the road to Galilee. Since Luke 24, 13, 29, 33 assumes it's possible to get there in, in a day, and back again by midnight, this would then have to be the very same town where Jesus' parents stopped and returned to find their missing Jesus. Luke 2, verses 44 to 45. So this further links these two stories beyond all other parallels noted so far. He's building based upon, well, first of all, you can see all the um, illusions that the Genesis writers are creating, right? 
and you can see the symbolism behind it. It's not real. They're not people. The names are more allegorical to places and just representing the times. So it's actually really, really cool. So back to the story. So Jesus' parents, now that we've discovered all of that, they stop where? They stop at God's house. And they return to find Jesus where? In God's house. And both couples find Jesus in God's house. Mary and Joseph in the Jerusalem temple, where the old Israel ends, and Cleopas, or Cleopas and his companion in Bethel, where the old Israel began. So this does not seem like a coincidence at all, or even likely, right? So someone understood the connection between Luke 24 and Luke 2, and made them even more elegant and complete by renaming the town. The original author is most likely the candidate for such an achievement. So now that we're looking at all the context here and all the information that we have, whether we grant the variant reading of the Codex Basie or not, it's still clear that Luke creates his Emmaus narrative to echo and in a sense complete his previous Lost Boy narrative. Right? That's right. The Lost Boy narrative. Lost Boys is also a great 80s movie, by the way, but vampires, right? So... Because Luke was fond of this story model and also evident from the fact that he reuses it in Acts to create the meeting between Philip and the Ethiopian Enoch in Acts 8, 26-49, which also occurs on another road journey from Jerusalem to another town, also features an overt mention of an ignorance of scripture and question. Do you understand what you are reading? Matches what are you discussing? And a consequent explanation of the gospel from scripture, a request for the interpreter to, you know, to stay longer, a feature sacrament, in this case, baptism in the Emmaus narrative. It is the Lord's Supper, to be exact. This is an apostolic opening, with quotations, right? Because Cleopas's eyes are opened in order to be able to see the truth. And the sudden disappearance of the interpreter, in this case Philip, who inexplicably vanishes in the midst of the sacrament being performed, just as Jesus does in the Emmaus tale. This is another unbelievable yarn, yet obviously deliberately adapts the same storyline as the Emmaus tale. Both are fiction, both are myth-telling, but both are very, very cool inventions of this author of Luke. With respect to the additional evidence of the variant reading of Alamaeus here, because it has another significance, which is to illustrate the general point, which is applicable to all the Gospels, all four canonical Gospels, that often cannot trust modern reconstructions of the original text, especially Luke and Acts, as well as John, which we'll discuss a little bit later. But they are always, to some extent, hypothetical. Because the Gospels could have easily said different things in their original composition, and then later scribes had changed. Because the oldest composition we have are from the 3rd century. That's over 200 years of screwing with it, right? And scholars admit as much for many specific verses that are already found. We just saw its likely Codex Basie that preserves the original text of Luke here and that this story was probably said to have taken place not at Emmaus, but in fact, Alamaeus. In other words, Bethel. Now, many biblical scholars 
also believe that the same Codex Basie may also preserve other original readings, as it contains several other variants like this that reflect a clearer consciousness of literary structure in Luke's stories, which is, again, a phenomenon more likely to come from the original author versus later copyists. So, for example, its text makes Peter's escape from prison in Acts more clearly echoes God's departing from the Jerusalem temple. The same is then accomplished by Basie's Luke making the stone blocking Jesus' tomb require, what, 20 men to open it, just as Josephus had said of the door of the Jerusalem temple, which says opened of its own accord one midnight to signal God's departure from the Jerusalem. And you remember who Jerusalem, who uh, Josephus is, right? So this was an illusion that turns Jesus' departing the tomb into a symbol of God's thereby departing the old Jewish temple, the old Jewish regime. Do you understand what he's doing here? That was actually really brilliant. And again, we have another author who's writing in the 90s who's also pulling from Josephus' works. So the wording is even similar. So in Josephus' works, he says, Barely 20 men could close it. And Luke says it was hard for 20 to roll it. This also is in accord with the evidence that Luke mined Josephus for details to include in his gospel, which further argues that this reading was original. As otherwise, we just suppose a later scribe knew it to continue adding details from Josephus on his own, which is really a horrible hypothesis because we already know that the other two were absolutely pulling from antiquities and wars of the Jews, not to mention other pagan sagas that were around in their time and way even before their time. There's no reason why a scribe would be doing this. So whatever we make of these facts, we have surveyed several examples from the most widely accepted text demonstrated that Luke is inventing his story from beginning to end, right? and not using any reliable sources, or even trying to discover the truth, right? Even what sources he does use are just previous myths, Mark and Matthew, and at best other fictional gospels that are probably now lost, such as Q. With just adding local color, added from historians like Josephus, who didn't write about Jesus or Christians at all, despite what some of you might think or believe or here is, you know, Christian hearsay. That's all been debunked, but we already verified this conclusion, demonstrating his extensive fabrication of acts. So we should not be surprised at all to find that this gospel is similarly compromised. So once again, there is in fact no way to discern what, if anything, that Luke has added to Mark or Matthew has any historical basis or, or even a source at all. And it having sources at all would still not establish it as historical. After all, his primary sources were Mark and Matthew, and they are demonstrably non-historical. So why would any of his other unknown sources be, right? All his added historical color comes from Josephus and probably other now lost historians from who Luke derives nothing about Jesus and many of his other additions like changes to nativity or embellishments of the resurrection narrative. They are historically implausible and rhetorically all too convenient. 
Some even come from rewriting of the Elijah-Elisha narrative and 1 and 2 Kings, right? Which we already reviewed and surveyed. But as history, all this entails in an improbable plethora of coincidences. But as historical fiction, it's exactly what we should expect. So it's been over an hour. I'm going to go ahead and wind this thing on down. But I think this was a pretty cool episode, um, taking a look deep into the author from Matthew and the author into Luke. And so I think we all have a pretty good understanding. I think before we move on into next chapters or episodes, I think it's important to just um, do a little um, review of what we've understood and what we've learned so far. And so in these last two episodes, we've covered really deep into the author of Mark, understanding when he was writing, what he used as source material, and a lot of examples. And then this episode, we went deep into Matthew, and then going into Luke. And so, we've got two more that we need to cover into this next episode that's coming up. So we need to get into John, which obviously takes us into the late 90s, even rolling into, some even suspect, even to the 130s, so well into the 2nd century, right? So we're going to take a look at the author of John. Now, he writes differently than the synoptics. So um, we consider Mark, Matthew, and Luke to be the synoptics because they write really close to each other, obviously copying each other, however embellishing on each other's story, making each one a little bit better than the last. But John writes the most freest of them all. And actually, and if you ask most Christians and even most pastors, um, John is actually a lot of their favorite to quote because he does kind of go off and creates his own things. But he's, he gets to embellish and recreate um, probably the missing cue as well as Mark, Matthew, and Luke, right? And then we're going to take a look at one more, and that's going to be Acts, which um, a lot of um, uh, biblical scholars believe that it was actually um, some earlier documentation that Luke, the author for Luke, had probably written. So nobody really knows for sure. Um, stylistically, you know, it could make sense. Um, dating might be a little bit weird, but it might open up a window to a whole other world of Christianity that we're not aware of yet. Um, so, so some pretty cool stuff here. So I think that um, great place to bring this one to a stop. I hope that you thoroughly enjoyed it. And again, if you think there's anybody that would be thoroughly enjoying this kind of um, information, this kind of uh, knowledge, um, please share it with them. Um, it's very cool. Um, take a look at the source material um, in the comments of the, of the episode. Um, when you're on to Spotify or Applecast or Google Podcasts, whatever your um, platform is that you're using, um, I put a lot of the source material that's in there. So again, hey guys, hope you're having a great week. It is Wednesday. It's June 8th. And man, what killer weather we're having right now. Everybody, love you lots. Peace out and be looking at you very soon with the next episode.